0: Welcome to SoundLore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting
1: tidbits. I'm Amanda Luke. And I'm David McDonald. On today's episode of SoundLore, Dr. Solimar Otero speaks about her new book, Archives of Conjure, Stories of the Dead in Afro-Latinx Cultures, with IU Ethnomusicology PhD student Amelia Lopez. In Afro-Latinx religious practices such as Cuban Espiritismo, Puerto Rican Santeria, and Brazilian Candomblé, the dead tell stories, communicating with and through mediums' bodies they give advice, make requests, and propose future rituals, creating a living archive that is co-produced by the dead. Dr. Otero argues that what she calls archives of conjure are produced through residual transcriptions or reverberations of the stories of the dead, whose archives are stitched, beaded, smoked, and washed into official and unofficial repositories. She investigates how sites like the ocean, rivers, and institutional archives create connected contexts for unlocking the spatial activation of residual transcriptions. Drawing on over 10 years of archival research and fieldwork in Cuba, Dr. Otero centers the storytelling practices of Afro-Latinx women and LGBTQ spiritual practitioners alongside Caribbean literature and performance. Dr. Otero is Professor of Folklore in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology and Editor for the Journal of Folklore Research. Her research interests include gender, sexuality, Afro-Caribbean spirituality, and Yoruba traditional religion in folklore, literature, and ethnography. In addition to archives of Conjure, Dr. Otero has an upcoming book co-edited with IU alum Mincy Martinez-Rivera titled Critical Folkloristics, Critical and Ethical Approaches for the 21st Century. Amelia Lopez is a Colombian PhD student here at Indiana University. Currently, Amelia is interested in the intersections of listening practices, music education, race, and anti-racist practices in the U.S. and Latin America.
2: I'm Solima Otero. I am a professor of folklore in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology. And I am very excited to be on this podcast today and to be speaking with Amelia and Amanda about my work. My name is
0: Amelia Lopez. Uh, I'm from Colombia and a PhD student in Ethnomusicology. I do research on Afro-Colombian violin traditions and I'm very interested in learning more about uh, Solimar's book. It's such an amazing, amazing book and really inspiring, especially for graduate students or undergrad, whoever is reading this and is thinking about ethnography and is thinking about uh, representation and thinking about these histories that uh, are so hard to find in scholarship, right? So I I want to start just thanking Thanking you for for this work is amazing. I couldn't stop reading. It's magical. <laughs> this book came up after 10 years of being working right in, in, in this topic. So tell us a little bit about the story of this.
2: Of course. Thank you. Thank you, Amelia. And thank you, Amanda, as well, for inviting me. This is a really... Um uh, touching. It's really important, and it, it's it's for me. It's, it means so much that uh, the next generation of folklorists, ethnomusicologists, literary scholars—you know—I'm very interdisciplinary—are looking at that work, their, this work, and seeing themselves somewhere in there. Um, so, how this this project, like my first book, took ten years. <laughs> I hope I increase my production somehow, but this process, this book really came out of a process of working with a spiritual community that i am also related to. Um, some of my mother's relatives are part of the spiritual community in Havana Kula. And I initially started doing work with them um, when I was doing my field work for my dissertation back in 1998, 99. Um, but Writing about the religion and my experience with the, these Afro-Cuban religions didn't happen until after um, I actually got tenure and felt empowered um, to kind of do the work I wanted to do um, in terms of like institutional frameworks and all, and all of that. And so really in terms of the book, I, it led me uh, working with the communities, really listening to their vernacular histories, whether it was through spirit mediumship, in a ritual of uh, seances, which I talk a lot about in the book, or in the archive, looking at the similar kinds of notes, what I call residual transcriptions, notes that uh, uh, anthropologists like Lydia Cabrera and Ruth Landis um, took in ritual, like the ones I was taking when I was working with my community, um, really made me think that there's there might be a, a framework for, and I think I call it, talk about it like you know, shells or stones on the sand that are left after the, the waves come out, that there's, there might be a scattered history there that um, can't be is not readily found in traditional historiographic or ethnographic methodologies. that these are histories that by, by and large have been coded through beating, through tr- tr- transcripts that don't seem very official, through doll making, through altar making a ritual. Because part of the power of uh, passing this on in the context of colonialism and slavery was to protect the material as well. So there is also an element of secrecy, and that's why it also took me so long to work in the archives and also with communities, which also included spirits, I had to get permission from spirits and and deities, which you can do through divination to do this work. it's cause it was organic. It was a collective process. So even though I'm the interlocutor, I'm the, you know, I'm the voice that's bringing us to all these different elements in the book. Um, the conjuring, you know, they they helped me, they helped me conjure. They gave me inspiration. They gave me uh, the community, the different aspects of the community gave me, um, you know, the, the multiple layers of voice that I try to, to, uh, to put in, in the text. So it's, it's, a, it's, in terms of methods, it's archival, it's uh, it's ethnographic, but then it's also theoretical in some ways. I'm really saying, what does it mean if we take the beliefs of uh, those who practice Afro-Latinx religion seriously and put that at the center of framing um, the work, so.
0: I, I think this is amazing. I am speechless just because it is, basically uh, putting in the center uh, what we are interested in understanding as part of our methodology. And that's uh, what I understood your invitation in rethinking ethnographic practices, right? Uh, And and I found it really powerful. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more in detail, especially for those of us who are starting to think about ethnography ethnographic work uh, how, how to approach these uh, methodologies of reciprocal ethnography
2: I'm glad you used that terminology because you know this work was not work that I did on my own or discovered on my own alongside the ancestors in the community also wonderful folklorists and ethnographers who've been working in this vein have uh, have done this work so Elaine lawless and her She's the one who really came up with this concept of reciprocal ethnography, and she was very supportive in the early, early years of this particular project, um, Archives of Conjure, and really sat down with me and really had me think through the ways that she works ethically with communities and the questions she had initially working with women who were involved with spirituality as leaders in, in, in Christianity and doing that, and as well, um, the work of Sabina Magliocco, who was also a friend, and her ethical approach to working with neo-pagan communities, and also her historicizing. But you know, if you read uh, *Witching Culture*, that was really kind of a breakthrough book in terms of she starts it with from her own field notes of attending, you know, different rites and rituals, and using multiple voices. That was that that is a very you know polyvocal ethnography. And speaking of polyvocal, of and in the introduction, I I have to bring up the ancestors, Aronia Hurston, who was a trickster herself, who writes about the concepts of conjure, who wrote about ethnography, who did ethnography, you know, participating in voodoo, participating in and hoodoo in uh, obeah in Jamaica as well as vodou in Haiti, and the way that she wrote, she layered and coded her work as um, Skip Gates. Uh, Junior has pointed out uh, many others who looked at her from the perspective of African American um, literature and poetics. That her work is a lot like the beating in an ileke or the coding on an altar. She was obviously reframing her uh, words and her work for multiple audiences, um, racially, culturally, ethnically. So, um, and she knew how to tell a good story. So. <laughs> And so that's what she had in common. I mean, with uh, it, what I found in common strain was that Zora Neale Hurston and her storytelling. I found traces of that among my family in Kuwa and my, you know, the religious uh, community I worked with, where if I would, you know, ask a, a direct question, I often would get a story in return. So, I would have to sit and think, and why did they tell me that story about those two gods? And and it was really, it it made me it made me realize that there's indirect pedagogy is a really really very important way that especially Afro Latinx and African diaspora. I also like Latinx too because we use a lot of dichos and and proverbs in 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 instructing our the values right, and so it actually allows for there to be a vernacular literary criticism that is born and that's another thing I wanted to bring out the uh, richness of the Latino Lat- Caribeño culture that is also paired with a similar richness uh, found in at West African cultures that kind of come together in this really interesting way and in Cuba you also have to include the Asian and the Mediterranean and the Jewish and so it's it's really kind of this, it's, it's also trying to, the work also tries to get at that complexity. So the methods in terms of ethnography and archives, I really think that um, it's really important to, to come in and allow yourself to uh, be led by the material uh, in the archive. I think a lot of that comes from working many years alongside being a folklorist, but being a literary scholar And letting the text and letting letting the text itself uh, lead some of to some of the ways that we can do critical analysis and I think that really allowed me to contemplate and sit with the materials in the archive as well as um, in the field uh, really paying attention to what my uh, collaborators were telling me so when I would ask a question the direct questions like what are you know, what are, what, what are the relationships between women in Santeria? Y como las, you know, feminismo exists in Santeria or something, you know, like, you know, having these questions that are from a perspective that is coming right out of a book proposal or a more formal analysis and then allowing the answer like, well, you should actually be paying attention to the story and what it tells you that might be unique and interesting and have an alternative take. On what you're already coming with in, with a pre-formulated vision, and what that allowed me to do is also sit with those ideas and then have a conversation with theory, because the work is theoretical as well, as you know, and have them have a conversation on equal footing, I believe, um, and that has to do with my my um, my proclivities in transnational feminism and queer theory. <laughs> in that there's a lot of talk about the body, the theories in the body and practice. And I think that that's, um, I really want to take that to heart as an ethical component of the work I'm doing. So I, um, so it actually has allowed me to really think out of the box in some ways. I was wondering how you
0: were able to manage these Amount of work that is like gigantic with all this intertextuality with not only with archives but we have pictures here also and we have descriptions of the rituals uh, that include that include a really big part of sensorial descriptions and uh, we have also. Um, a lot of uh, literary forms include poetry and uh, songs and uh, a lot of metaphors right and I was very interested uh, about this metaphor of beating and suing Ah, yeah uh, and, and I wonder if you if you want to tell us a little bit more about that
2: beautiful question thank you Amelia OK, so um, I realized that when I was, you know, speaking and, and interacting and, and with people, spirits, archives, that objects are uh, not just objects that that like I like I mentioned in the book, these acts of beating and sewing are often uh, whether you find the artifact or the object or dolls that you have to beat. And sew after the fact or whether you're asked to do so, like I was and I describe in the book being asked to do the work of beading and sewing um, because there's spirits in in a misa that that, that requested that of me as some sort of a kind of a healing process, right? And it's interesting because that connected me to a knowledge that I had directly from my grandmother who had passed away, right? So this idea of embodied practice. Last semester, we were, I did a performance studies class, and and we read Diana Taylor's work, and she has this idea of uh, the embodied practice is holding information that doesn't get into the archive, that it's kind of these repertoires of, of that we hold in our body, and those are called acts of transfer. And I think you can kind of think of beading and sewing as a kind of act of transfer, that it's a kind of knowledge um a kind of uh, uh, it's a pedagogy too it's pedagogical but it's also ontological there's becoming there too and what it what it does it allows us to think of ways of archiving uh history and knowledges but also conjuring them again when we're reading the beads or reading the stitches and in in um in a cloth uh, in order to understand kind of their symbols and their meanings and the metaphors. So for example, I'll give you a more concrete example. Um, If you are, say, we'll use Yamaya since the goddess of the ocean is very important in the book. And the goddess of the ocean, her her colors are blue and white and her number seven. And so a lot of times if you see somebody who is a priest or priestess of Yamaya, they might be wearing a beaded um, necklace or an idae, which is a, a uh, a, 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 I'm, I'm losing the bracelet. A bracelet, I have like Yorba words in my head in Spanish. And a bracelet, and the, you will see patterns of colors, and you'll see patterns of, of her colors the seven, 14, 21, you know, all these different kind of codes. And these enmeshed and layered codes actually refer to particular narratives because there's different roads to the gods, so the actual patterns. Uh, that you see in a necklace of beading or the actual patterns you see in the day um, are actually referring to specific narratives, to specific roads, and those roads are chapters in people's lives. So, for example, you have a road of Yamaya Kuti. she's more fierce and she's the one who gets angry when people mess with the sea and there's pollution and there's, you know, so then you might have different patterns that are, there are different patterns for her necklaces than say a Yemaya Sisu, who's the, who is of the sea foam. So this is very detailed information, but that's what I'm saying is that within one string of beads, you have to reconjure all the, all the meanings. Now, when the person is beating, they are singing those songs that refer to those um, narrative to those narratives and they are thinking of that with intentionality so that's an archive of some sort in a sense you know um i i think that though it's interesting what word would i use in yoruba what word would i use in locomi what word i would i use in spanish and spanish but i think what it is is a repository i would say that at least of, of information that is that's passed along that's coded you know in such a way that you that you there could during the time when you couldn't you know, perform that religion, right? When there was, you know, uh, punishment that that, you know, that would be a way of passing on the religion, but also it transcends language barriers. So these meanings can mean similar things to people who speak Portuguese, English, Spanish, Yoruba, French. Um, so beating and sewing really uh, led me to, my, my more current work is on actually um, the material culture. And the dense work it does. And also because it's there's a permanence, but also impermanence to it, to, or a regenerative process. So I've been recently working with the Boveda spirits tables, where you use glasses of water. And sometimes these are set up for visas. You see that in the book, there's some of those images. But or sometimes you have personal one of your own and you're always changing the water, you're changing the objects, you're always... So this is not something that is static. It's something that's being reinvented in conversation with your community, which also includes um, what I call occasionally material beings, <laughs> which are either ancestors or rishas. So um, thank you for, for that question, because that is actually something that was a layer to the book that I think really provided an interesting framework to that I could kind of, you know, cling, like, you know, catch on to, to say, you know, there is, it's not just about stories and words. Those, those are important, but there's actually the way that, uh, that, that, uh, art, right. That creativity can, can do this work as well. It was something that I found so inspiring. And so that's, like I said, I'm working on that's my new work is actually moving in that direction.
0: That's amazing. I'm seeing, I, I can't wait to, to read the continuity of these ideas and, and, i read this as this practice i i was thinking also about uh, the the female um uh role right of of this kind of practices right and 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 that convert really well with uh, the use of scholarship uh, you bring in to this uh, into this book we have a lot of different perspectives not only from the US uh, but uh, Latinx people in the in the US and in Latin America and uh, also like big names in the scholarship so that is I, I think that interconnection of different people, different voices, uh, was really powerful, and I and I could see that as a way of, of, representing this uh, bedding and sewing. There's something that I, I I read in your introduction, and I loved, uh, and I want to read a little bit of this. Um, and you're talking about uh, Sabina Magliocco's uh, work. Uh, that you mentioned earlier and um you said that uh the writing of ethnography becomes a magical act this is this is Magliocco, sorry um yeah. so uh she says uh the writing of ethnography becomes a magical act none less than the creation of a ritual the making of a spell or the manufacture of sacred objects the ethnographer is by definition a magician and of course, and then you say, I agree with Magliocco in that ethnography is a kind of conjure. It creates worlds and experiences through the imagination and senses in ways that can transport and transform consciousness. I love this uh, quote, and I wanted to bring this up because uh, here you're talking about uh, different um, concepts that are not discuss very often in academia these uh, vernacular understandings of the world uh, like magic and uh, the possibilities in it so because of all of the inspiration of this work and in this book uh, I, I wanted to get you to talk a little bit more about the magic of the book the magic of the work of ethnography and uh the possibilities uh, for new generations in, this, uh, in doing
2: this activist work. Thank you so much. That's such a wonderful, deep and, and, and crucial question. That's like at the heart the corazón of the book, really. And I have to, again, thank um, Sabina for her work in opening this up and, and spending time speaking with me when she started this project, when she started her project way back in the, in the 90s. I met her at Berkeley when she started. Um, yeah, well, you know, there's multiple ways that I enter that. The first thing, the first way I enter that idea of conjuring through not only through doing ethnography, it has it, it's not only the writing. Whenever we write anything, we are creating a world, whether it's a piece of creative nonfiction, whether it's scholarship, whether it's poetry, there is a positionality there. And there is a decision and how to represent what it is that we're trying to say right that the voice or the voices that we use and there's a really interesting um kind of argument about this in history and historiography and Paul Ricoeur the um philosopher (laughs) uh does a lot of interesting work in terms of the issue the issue of metaphor and, the, and whether metaphor can or cannot be trusted in, in, in representing truth or reality. And that's kind of at the heart of the problems that, that come up with cultural history and all that. But we're not going to get into that here. But I am thinking about that because a lot of the um, conjuring that happens in the rituals and in the material culture and in the stories um, with my spiritual family in Cuba, with the Spiritistas and, um, and, um, and with Santeros and Santeras, Paleros and Paleras is about making a world that has a link, um, not only a link that vivifies the past, right? These ancestors come up in the Misa, they tell you a story, they tell you what you need to do, as well as um, the ways that people, like I said, tell you a story about the Orishas when you ask them a direct question uh, from your ethnographic you know, set of interview questions, right? And I think that um, they are the ancestors, the community, The other uh, scholars who likewise are practitioners, but also do their scholarly work that um, I've called friends or, you know, able to speak with, um, that we're all part of this work. And that's part of the reason why I dedicated two chapters to two scholars who really represent um, and looking behind the scenes really represent uh, what it means to live doing this kind of work and Lydia Cabrera and Ruth Landis. And I, and I chose them in particular because they were outsider insiders in some ways. You know, they weren't, uh, uh, in, you know, Lydia Cabrera was a lesbian, she was Cuban, but she was a uh, uh, lighter skinned uh, Cuban and she went into the Afro-Cuban community. Ruth Landis was um, a Jewish woman doing this work on um, Af- uh, with Afro-Brazilian religions and Candomblé. And I really wanted to kind of peel back some of those layers of how they've conjured those communities, those communities of women, whether it's in or Chung with Lydia Cabrera or City of Women with Ruth Landis, and looking at their own pri- more private um, or just their own vernacular notations of their real relationships with Yamaya in uh, Lydia Cabrera's case, and with Ochun, the goddess of the river, in, um, in Landis's case. Landis, in order for either one of them to do work in, in the community of um, Yoruba-inspired religions, pe- people, you have to be placed within the community. And that usually means placing, everybody's born with an orisha, placing you with your orisha. The community understands uh, you, as a being that has multiple uh, actors, <laughs> whether they're Orishas or ancestors, nobody's walking alone, so they got to know who you're walking with in some ways. so this idea of conjure you know uh, in terms of field work and perspective is there, and so it you know it 's much more difficult to write about. I think that 's why it took me ten years, <laughs> but it 's how one does work in with with the community and being part of the community. And I think that, that also means there's a place for insiders and outsiders too. So Yoruba inspired religions uh, aren't um, there, they don't, they're open to every single culture, race, ethnicity and nationality, as well as open to, if you take ifa divination and and at the root uh, of, of the, like, you know, the ideas of the religion, and then also sexuality and gender, right? And so because even though there are patriarchal manifestations, like I think come out of colonialism, but we could talk more about that later. Um so because of that, there's there's um theologically you could even say, in Yoruba meta language and you're a meta-language and in divination verses, there's ways of being an outsider, being an allegio, being a uh, but being an outsider and then becoming an insider. An or an initiate. That's part of a journey, the iranjo, and this idea of always being—you're be, be, an outsider, always becoming, getting closer to to being part of a community, or always going on a journey. That's actually part of the idea of of life and death. So it's like you're always learning, you're always on a journey, you always are going to be outside because there's always levels of secrecy you can't get into. You're always going to be outside of something, but then that's like a pedagogy too, because you're always learning there's always something new to learn and so um yeah so in terms of the framework of ethnography and magic <laughs> magic of ethnography um yeah there was there was no other choice actually <laughs> if i wanted to really try to write about the experiences that um i was perceiving and that i was um, having with 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 my with my community that i was working with
0: thank you for that for taking the risk oh <laughs> because it, it is understood as a risk right it is it is um, yeah writing these these ways in and um, addressing the issues in, in the way you're doing them so, so powerfully uh
2: thank I you i think that's why it took me so long to do i think that it took me 10 years because and this was something that Elaine La- Lawless told me. She says we need to see more of you in this text. You don't come in until until later. And I think that there was something that I was really, really um, scared of writing about my personal involvement. I was really scared of writing about um, just kind of the raw, the rawness and the realness. But then I and then I said, well, if I'm going to be talking about spirits and orishas and former scholars and, and thinking about the ways they were connected to these, uh, uh ephemeral ways of being, of, 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 connecting with the world. I have to be honest and do the work myself. I'm not going to understand it if I'm, if I don't put myself through that process in some way. So what I really tried, I didn't try it. I don't consider the work autoethnography at all. Um, maybe there's some, Parts that are uh, I talk about my experiences. Um, but I do i but I do believe that there is an el- element of like introspection and contemplation in this work that's a little bit different than my earlier work. This is really was a turning point for me, uh, and to be able to write so personally about um, just my interactions. With the different with, with even with with the work in the archives and uh, what it did for me in my life it was um it was transformational so it is a risk it's it's not only going with the community and you know coming back with you know whatever its really was about like really describing a, a journey that was you know uh, that that is still being done in conjunction uh with uh, with a range of of people, you know, so
0: yeah, and I think what that's one of the most, um, how to explain this, uh, probably interesting and catching, uh, elements of the book, uh, that we can see your process and your interactions through the stories and the different chapters, and how you also we conversing with these scholar ancestors and uh, these colleagues also. Uh, so it it was um, to uh, for me to me as as a Latin American woman uh, uh, an example of deconstructing uh, one's perspective uh, in in the in this colored work. Right and and getting to understand the different uh, not only talking about positionality because uh, it's necessary to talk about positionality but actually showing how you were doing the work right uh, of of understanding your position in the field your position in in within the literature itself and <laughs> in, in all the all the conversations that were happening in in, in the text. and um, something that we haven't talked about uh, yet, uh, and it was central was the uh, the element of water that is changing all the time, and we have uh, waves that go and come and, and and different types of water, ocean, rivers. So do you want to talk a little bit more about water?
2: Absolutely. I mean, Omi, oh, Omi, oh me, oh me, water. Water is um, crucial. There, water, You know, this book really started with Yemaya Yochum, that chapter, actually, which is like chapter three, I think. And it really started with the work I was doing with Lydia Cabrera's papers, and also Ruth Landis, and then with the community I was working with, alongside with being in the archive with two ancestors who were Writing about their water goddesses—the one of salty water, the one of sweet water—that are sisters, <laughs> the goddesses. I was encountering uh, with with my community similar stories. Working with the Miya priestesses, working with Oshun priestesses, and thinking, really thinking about that relationship of of sisterhood in, in some ways, and and what does that mean? You know, it's not all rosy. There's a lot. There can be a lot of conflict. And, But I really love this idea of different, because there's just so many different kinds of water. Water is ubiquitous, but then you also have the rivers, the sweet running waters. Then you also have the lagoons or the lakes, and then you have the water that all runs into the sea, which is kind of the larger component. And I was really fascinated with how this element of salty water and sweet water interplayed with the Caribbean poetics. I'm, um, you know, I, I consider myself a Caribbeanist and um, something that is very consistent in Caribbean art, music, the literature in particular, poetry is, um, wor- is work about I- being in an island, being surrounded by water, but also like this, these ideas of the different kind of um, geographies and ecologies that, that, that take place there and how that informs the poetics and aesthetics of transformation actually that even even though it's an island, um, that doesn't mean you're stuck on the island. There's always a transformation. Um, and I felt that the water element, the water the elements of water, especially, you know, this element of sweet and salt water coming into each other. I didn't write too much about it in this book, but it is something that a, a friend of mine, Lillian Mansor at the University of Miami, she does she's a theater historian. She does work on performance in Cuba she did this wonderful um, look at um, this, perform- this performance uh, work that is that is like building altars on stage with people's bodies and doing the work of, of performativity with in Cuba, but like on stage. And, and she connected to um, Maurice Condé's uh, kind of writing metaphor of the mangroves. She has this one, Condé has this beautiful book, uh, Crossing the Mangrove, which is all just storytelling, but they had the image of You know, mangrove has uh, brackish water, and it has these roots that kind of grow on themselves. They're kind of rhizomatic in in some ways. And um, how that kind of represents the messiness that I was um, trying to um, capture in the book. So even though you have waves and, and water that have their flows, they have their contra, you know, I said the, the contra corriente, the counter flows, you also have water when it comes together, making something new and something messy and something that is hard to distangle. Well. And I feel, I feel that's like caribbean um, The and that is, and I know we're in our class, we're talking about transculturation, right? And that has to do with uh, that messiness is, the legacy of slavery and racism and sexism and patriarchy and everything that colonialism brought brought along and the economic systems uh, exploitation all of that but at the same time the water it's a witness but it's also always changing right it's necessary so um yeah so in terms of how it it, it influenced the book it influenced it as actually a point of departure in, in how the book kind of came about, but it also influenced it in terms of becoming a larger metaphor that allowed me to bring in what I wanted to say about Caribbeanness and, and Caribbean culture in the book. As you know, Edward Glissant is a really important figure in how I theorize the poetics of of the narratives in the book, whether they're told by by uh, you know an Ochun priestess or whether they're written by. Uh, um, Maya Santos Quebrez and Sirena Selena, that um, there is a poetics of transformation, that transphysical poetics that is found in um, Caribbean work. That is, that the ocean is kind of, I feel like a part of that, holding so many different cultures, languages, um, islands kind of together. And at the same time, but at the same time, they're each unique. They keep their specificity. And um, Victor Hernandez Cruz is a New Yorkian poet. And he has a, I can't remember the title of the poem, (laughs) but he has this beautiful poem where he talks about the islands of the Caribbean, like a, like a necklace on the seas, your neck or something. And it's kind of, it's kind of like that. So I know I'm sounding a little bit romantic. I'm not trying to, but, um, but yeah, and I found it to be very useful. And that's why you know the conclusion is del Mar, sea foam. I really wanted to focus on the relationship of this image of the sea, which kind of co- grows out of chapter four, which is all about LGBTQ community and lip syncing and the ocean and the um, transgender deity, Arinle, who's, a river, who's a river deity um, who also has connections to Yamaya. Um, I really wanted to focus on the relationship in the conclusion between um, Reynaldo Arenas who is a, a well-known uh, poet and writer from Cuba who was exiled because of his homosexuality and Lydia Cabrera and I found their letters to each other to be so touching you know he died um he committed suicide because he was suffering so from AIDS in New York and Lydia Cabrera and 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 him had this correspondence that was just so touching and very much about Two strangers, I said Alejo, two people who are kind of strangers on this journey, they don't consider the United States their home, they don't consider Cuba their home, and they find solace in the sea and write both of them write about the sea. I don't know if you read any of Reynaldo Arenas' work. I mean, El Color de Verano. Um, you know, he has the sea is central in a lot of his in a lot of his work and you know, uh, Lydia Cabrera used to sign off her letters, you know, Yamaya, right, um, instead of her own name sometimes, right? And so I believe that there was this kind of uh, connection that they shared. Oh, and I forgot a, a minor detail. Uh, I have an edited volume uh, uh, with uh, the historian Toyin Falola on um, Yamaya um and it's all about her the this 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 Yoruba sea goddess and her and all of her different you know kind of uh well she's associated with with all water in in nigeria um and a, a very important aspect of vernacular knowledge of of Yamaya is that she is the protector of lgbtq communities, and that is well established i'm not wasn't the person who established that. Connor and Sparks. I can give you a bibliography. (laughs) It's been established. And so, um, so that, that is really fascinating Um, in terms of kind of there is this, so I'm not saying there's a direct line in the way that we would say in in Western, you know, rational ideas of, you know, causation, but it's no surprise that the sea is, is a point of uh, un abrazo between a place, you know, that, that uh, Lydia Cabrera and Reynaldo Arena can embrace each other to kind of think about their positionality. We're going to read something in our class this this semester. So it's all, it just connects to transnational feminism as well, about Julia de Burgos, uh, the famous Puerto Rican poet. I don't know if you've heard of her work. Um, she actually died in New York, but she was a Puerto Rican... Um, poet who traveled a lot and she, her work was always very um, outspoken and um, in, in, in looking at her work some people have considered her relationship to the ocean and her relationship to her own kind of, you know, she established she was a very outspoken woman she didn't care, if you know if she wasn't married and she had relationships with men, so she was considered to be with, you know, kind of a sexile, an exile because of her positionality vis-a-vis patriarchy. So um, you, we can see, this is something that's a larger pattern. I actually, I won't get go off too much on a tangent, but it's actually something that other Caribbean scholars, especially literary scholars, are looking at now.
0: I, I was very interested about that. And actually, I, I started mentioning water because I found the fourth uh yeah the fourth chapter sirens uh sirens sirens Sirens. Sirens. sirena sirena sirenas.
2: you can code switch i'm sure amanda won't be mad (laughs) fine great
0: (laughs) so the figure of the sirenas and and the conversation of of Uh, lgbtq uh representations and and performances in the in religion in religious practices and it it was fascinating and it was it made me think about all these um transhumanism post-humanism all these conversations uh that are very important right now and especially in the moment that we are right now where all these conversations about what is considered different uh, are so crucial right. for right. generating social movement and a change. Uh, so I, 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 I was bringing that um, that question because of, of those connections and uh, I wanted you to expand a little bit more on this um, figure of the sirena uh, that was really beautiful. <laughs>
2: Thank you. I really appreciate that. And this, and this idea of decentering the human—you know—I um, so, so don't want to sound like Flannery O'Connor. Damn secular humanism! No, I'm not coming from that for a second. But this, this is a very important uh, uh, part of, of theorization of, of, of environmental justice and other forms of people who do work with animals, you know, studies and all sorts of, you know, um, kind of frameworks that are coming in there and that's why I brought up the whole issue of material semiotics by Donna Haraway in the introduction because you know her work started with cyber feminism and now she does animal studies it's kind of interesting with decentry. there's other ways of knowing that and other ways to make meaning besides that so with that in mind um that chapter is actually really um you know piece of literary criticism there's some ethnography in there of course and the narrative you know narrative uh, uh, comparisons between some of the stories that were, were told in the field, either documented by Lydia Cabrera or from you know, F. Um, Bile, mi padrino, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and but uh, but as bookends, or not even bookends, as 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 kind of narrative um interventions with uh Mayra Santos Pedres's novel, Sirena Selena, Vestida de Pena. Now, that novel has a lot of literary criticism because it is so um in, in like steeped in uh, the ways that Afro Puerto Rican New Yorkian, um, trans drag cultures are being remapped rethought about what does a queer Caribbean geography look like what its relationship to neocolonialism and sex tourism and all this kind of stuff so there's a lot of really really good literary work on Uh, literary criticism on Sirena Selena. But I, so that, of course, I take as, you know, a very rich repository for contextualizing my own understanding of of the figure of Sirena Selena. For me, Sirena Selena, because of Mayra Santos Febres's very close relationship to Santeria in her writing, she makes it clear um, that it's something that really is a kind of a, a motif, if not a uh, something that helps her to do the narrative scaffolding of, of the book. The novel starts out with what I would argue is an oriki or a praise poem, calling down sirena <laughs> in some ways, this beautiful language saying, you know, you know, emerge beautiful sirena bird, come and sing your songs. You know, it's this, it's just, it's very much in line with a lot of other um, uh, work uh, that is about Afro-Latino spirituality and Afro-Latino um, culture where they do an opening that is like an old tutu, which is an opening prayer or a mojuba that's an opening prayer that opens up the way for uh for readers to get into the story. So what I saw in Sirena Selena, if I read Sirena Selena alongside stories of Irinle, the transgender deity of uh who's beautiful, just I mean, the way that Irinle is described by Irinle priests and his his beauty and his ability to heal really like sirena selena is almost like there's this beautiful parallel so alongside like how i just how my my last answer to your last question that i'm not trying to make a direct line what i'm trying to do is bring these things next to each other and see what those resonances those of you you know sound you know sound studies right those resonances or even dissonances what can they what can, can what can we pay attention to if we put them side by side and so for me, Sirena Selena became a way of of thinking through um, the figure of the... Even though she sings, Sirena Selena canta los boleros. Like she has the voice, whereas drag queens are performing and the voice is being performed through them. And that's how the drag queens are more like Erile. Because since um, Yamaya took out Erinele's tongue, she's the one who speaks for him in the divin- divination style. So it's an interesting thing. But Sirena Selena's um, shifting... Um, uh positionality is male and female gorgeous elegant being able to um heal and being able to make people feel really resonated with the way erin um is being described right and understood and and its role in his role in the culture and also then as a way of rethinking this idea of the homeric sirens of the danger of of, of female sexuality, of the danger of non-heteronormative, you know, relationships of the danger of these beautiful manifestations of fluid um, sensuality and sexuality that at the heart, um, what is connecting these things together in the Latino culture is this idea of the sentimiento. And I felt that was really important. I couldn't, you know, I, I could do another book on this, um, I've looked at a lot of um, uh, interviews with great singers like Lidia Mendoza from, you know, Tejas and other singers, and they always say it's about sentir, like cancion, and the people who sing are interpreters, right? They interpret. They're not like, they're not just singers. They interpret the song, right? So there's this act of becoming that it goes alongside with uh, these acts of becoming, and when i say the performance of ritual i mean performance makes things happen it doesn't mean that it's like oh you know it's not real it is real the performance of uh, an entity in uh in a in a arriving in a misa or at a at a bembe at a drumming and that how that entity then um, there's a cohabitation of the body and there's this healing work that's being done with the community and also so i i uh, i theorize that the orique, that this kind of interaction with an entity in a, in a ritual, and the kind of interaction in similar rituals, they of drag performance for the LGBTQ community is doing similar kinds of community-making, imagined community-making and healing work through a similar kind of artistry, which is this idea of cohabitation of the body being prepared. In particular, I was interested in the artistry of performing divas or the artistry performing this particular uh, frame, which, does make sense, and then and then within the chapter, I do go into a little bit how there is an overlap between, you know, drag uh, queens uh, or transformistas, what I call them better because they it's transformation um, in places like Cuba and Puerto Rico, and they also perform orishas at some cases and things like that. So you have that 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 balance there that's shared, um, and so yeah, I think that there's that's actually my other project I'm thinking of doing now. Um, as I want to go a little bit more deep into um, Chosen Kin and the actual cultural overlap. And I, in particular, I want to work with uh, drag kings because there's not enough done with female masculinity in, Lat- in Latin- Latino and Latinx studies. And I would like very much to look at um, a community of drag kings in Havana um, that are also uh, part of Santeria community and how 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 is this negotiation of chosen kin in their family? you know in the family life you have these different families that you are become a part of through different kinds of artistry um shaping the body in different ways when you get initiated your body's remade when you perform as a drag king your body's remade you know um I'm really interested in that i'm re- and I really am interested in female masculinity um with regard to uh like uh Latino Caribbean experiences. Because I don't think there's been a lot of attention paid to that up until now. And it would be really, I would think it, it's it's really needed, you know, um there would there would be a really interesting kind of uh, so more stories to tell.
0: The the book, the work that you've done, Zorimar I is inspiring in so many different levels at the same like in almost at the same level that This book is layered like so many different uh, possibilities uh, that I became aware of, especially because I'm an ethnomusicologist and I'm reading a folklore (laughs) text, right? But which is interdisciplinary and uh, it's uh, it converses a lot with all the issues that I've been thinking that I want to research all the different types of um, what, what you said here, the different ecologies of being. So it's something really, uh, I think, important and useful to think or to frame research nowadays, especially when intersecting with these communities that have been underrepresented and misrepresented throughout the history. So I just wanted to thank you again for this amazing work. It's really inspiring. And I'm so glad you
2: are with us
0: in the department.
2: Oh, thank you so much no you this is you don't know you're giving me corazón you're giving me life <laughs> like I said, it really means a lot to me and I think you know I know a little bit about your work with violin and yeah I was so excited to hear about that and 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 the communities that you work with and I think that there's a similarity there where you have Uh, a complexity of layering of, of race and history and expectations of authenticity and how communities themselves say, we know what we're doing with our stuff. And don't tell us that we can't play the violin the way we want to play the violin and it doesn't belong to us, or I don't know. So I think that there's an, if anything, especially in the chapter two, crossing, where I talk about transculturation, I talk about how culture doesn't have to be pure and it doesn't have to be pure to fight against white supremacy and colonialization, and it doesn't have to be pure to represent some romantic other, you know. And that's sometimes the pitfalls of of, of 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 some of the work that anthropologists and folklorists and other folks do is that there is a complexity of 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 history, a complexity of of art and creativity, and 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 it's okay to be able to start from there. And not have all the answers, and not, you know, um, and have it be complicated. Ideologies and everything, right? I'm not saying that things aren't ideological, but I think that sometimes when we're dealing with communities who have really dealt with a, fra- a whole slew of uh, fra- multiple ideologies that are trying to uh, trying to define who they are, right, or who we are, and and, and that there is this other way of thinking through, of, of doing the work ethically, of doing the work of claiming the multiplicity of of art and creation and music and ritual um, that may not fit into the North American view of you have to pick one side or the other or whatever. Um, and all this to say is that I hope that this allows, that that work allows for you to, you know, not be afraid to be you know embrace that messiness embrace that multiplicity because i think that um it's just it it's okay if, you, if it doesn't if you're the work that you're doing doesn't fit into this neat kind of preconceived little kind of box right
1: Soundlore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to SoundLore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.